Hello, hello. Welcome to Brain Dump. I am Izzy Benari, your host, crazy driver and shaman on today's tangential experience. Elias Tarkington, the severely wounded Abraham Lincoln lookalike, was brought home in one of his own wagons to Scripio, to his estate overlooking the town in the lake. He was not well educated and was more a mechanic than a scientist, and so spent his last three years trying to invent what anyone familiar with Newton's laws would have known was an impossibility. A perpetual motion machine. He had no fewer than 27 contraptions built which he foolishly expected to go on running after he had given them an initial spin or whack until Judgment Day. I found 19 of those stubborn, mocking machines in the attic of what used to be their inventor's mansion, which in my time was the home of the college president about a year after I came to work at Tarkington. I brought them back downstairs into the 20th century Some of my students and I cleaned them up and restored any parts that had deteriorated during the intervening 100 years. At least they were exquisite jewelry, with garnets and amethyst for bearings, with arms and legs of exotic woods, with tumbling balls of ivory, with shoots and counterweights of silver. It was as though dying Elias hoped to overwhelm science with the magic of precious materials. The longest my students and I could get the best of them to run was 51 seconds, some eternity. To me, and I passed this on to my students, the restored devices demonstrated not only how quickly anything on earth runs down without steady infusions of energy. They reminded us too of the craftsmanship no longer practiced in the town below. Nobody down there, in our time, could make things that cunning and beautiful. Yes, we took the ten machines we agreed were the most peculiar, and we put them on permanent exhibit in the foyer of this library underneath a sign, whose words can surely be applied to this whole ruined planet nowadays. The complicated futility of ignorance. I just read you a bit of Kurt Vonnegut from his novel, Hocus Pocus, 1990. That's why nobody wants to be bothered with maintenance. Building something new is exciting, but maintaining something old is tedious and unglamorous. Entropy killed the seamstress. Entropy killed Robert Persig. Entropy surely killed the refrigerator repairman. And so it goes. Is time more valuable than money? Which is more readily available? You can always make time, not money. Money takes time to make. 
Hey, you owe me $10,000 or it's your girlfriend's fingers. I don't have 10K. I need some time. Tomorrow, 10 a.m. A thousand a finger. How much time does it take to grow back 10 fingers? Money or currency is a representation of time or personal investment. Replacing barter with something representative. It's lighter to carry, you could put it in your wallet or your burlap sack. Before written history, somewhere in the Fertile Crescent, currency was more like an IOU for some weight of grain or beer or honey, all of which took some amount of time or manpower to produce. The first coins were really clay tokens in different shapes to represent different amounts of different commodities. One tetrahedral shaped token represented one day's work done by one man. The bottle of Rioja in your cabinet? You're not just paying for the grapes and the yeast and the bottle it came in. The land took time to till. The grapes took time to grow and process. Then it all sat in a barrel or a jar for a long time. Then it sat in a truck and on a shelf before you bought it and someone sold it to you. All these people had to do a lot of things to make all that happen and those things took time. Maybe they didn't want to be doing all those things for free. So someone gave them a time representative currency to make it worth their while. The yeast, unfortunately, don't have a labor union. Working in an anaerobic environment, hell. They get paid in sugar before drinking themselves to death in their own alcoholic excrement. And I bet you spent some time doing things you didn't particularly want to be doing, all in order to afford that wine and this place you're sitting and lounging and drinking it. Also this device you're listening to me on. Go figure. Why is my gas price so high? It literally took three billion years and dead dinosaurs to make that shit. Per gallon, you should be complaining about the wine prices. Good things take time. Is time synonymous with entropy? Do good things really take entropy? What is entropy? Entropy, simply put, is a measure of disorder, chaos, really the spreading of matter and energy in the universe. As time goes, all things decay and fall out of order. The adage, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, does have some truth. Have you noticed that when you stop taking care of your apartment, it quickly becomes a terrible mess? Who did that? How come things don't spontaneously come into order? How come they don't clean themselves? The dishes didn't clean themselves. They didn't put themselves away in the cabinet. The trash didn't find its way back to the bin. Shit's all over the place. Mothers show up to the patent office with a perpetual motion machine. Another way to understand entropy is through a statistic nature. Matter, things, and energy. Well, everything is energy. It continues to spread out. If you took a bunch of trash and you throw it up in the air, what are the chances that it all makes its way into the garbage can? Really next to none. It's gonna fly all over the place, make a big mess. Not uniformly, but maybe some clumps will appear. It's gonna spread out. It's gonna go up in the air, spread out, land on the floor. It takes work, really, to resist this, to, to reverse this. Um, really, energy to bring it all back together. I'm pretty sure this is why the universe keeps expanding. 
It's just simply more likely that things are spread out in an infinite and infinitely expanding space. Don't quote me on that though. So energy spreads out, it becomes less and less potent. Potentials dissipate from irreversibilities, rubbing bits and friction to heat that fall into an unusable form. In the creation of disorder, unusable heat energy. All potential energies of the universe will be spent during their inevitable transfer to kinetic energy. These motherfuckers on motorcycles outside my window also will cease to exist. The sun will no longer shine to produce food to nourish Sisyphus. His muscles will go slack, and the boulder will come tumbling down the hill where it will remain. Batteries will run out. All highs will become low. Springs will no longer bounce. As the universe disperses, even the faint motion of vibrating atoms will cease as the universe comes to thermal equilibrium. It's going to be cold. Real cold. Absolute zero, says Lord Kelvin. And all will be useless spent particles of energyless information strewn about in an infinitely chilly expanse. So, if this is true, and disorder can only be created, stuff only spreads out to infinity, infinitely dispersed, scattered, and useless, and it takes more energy to collect the stuff of the universe, that's to say it takes more energy to recollect or create potentials than what's stored um, in total, entropy will only increase with Einstein's arrow of time. I pose this question. How did everything get to square one to begin with? How did the loaded spring of the expanding universe get loaded at the beginning of the era of time? Since, of course, because of irreversibilities, it would have taken more energy to load the spring than this elastic, springy universe even contains. Energy in minus energy out should equal change of energy of the system. Is the universe even a system? Does the universe violate the first and second laws of thermodynamics? The universe would not be approved by the US Patent Office. I would say, as a redeeming positive notion. It is really a wonder that we've made it this far. As bad as you think things may be, enough things didn't fall apart today for you to survive until hearing this. Enough things fell into alignment and didn't catastrophically fail for you to be born into a world on the shoulders of giants. Though in upward battle, Sisyphus will fight against the second law of thermodynamics for now, Malachi Constant watched the lead-colored lips kiss thin air soundlessly. The tongue behind the lips clicked infinitesimally. The lips suddenly drew back, barring the perfect teeth of Winston Niles Rumford. Constant was himself showing his teeth, preparing to gnash them appropriately at the sign of the man 
who had done him so much harm. He did not gnash them. For one thing, no one was looking. No one would see him do it and understand. For another thing, Constant found himself destitute of hate. His preparations for gnashing his teeth decayed into a yokel gape. the gape of yokel in the presence of spectacularly mortal disease. Winston Niles Rumford was lying, fully materialized, on his back of the lavender contour chair by the pool. His eyes were directed at the sky, unblinkingly and seamlessly sightless. One fine hand dangled over the side of the chair, its limp fingers laced in the yoke chain of Kaza, the hound of space. The chain was empty. An explosion on the sun had separated man and a dog. A universe schemed in mercy would have kept man and dog together. The universe inhabited by Winston Niles Rumford and his dog was not schemed in mercy. Kazakh had to be sent ahead of his master on the great mission to nowhere and nothing. Kazakh left hollowing in a puff of ozone and sick light in a hum like swarming bees. Rumford let the empty choke chain slip from his fingers. The chain expressed deadness, made a formless sound in a formless heap, was a soulless slave of gravity born with a broken spine. Rumford's lead-colored lips moved. Hello, Beatrice, wife, he said sepulchrally. Hello, space wanderer, he said. He made his voice affectionate this time. Gallant of you to come, space wanderer, to take one more chance with me. Hello, illustrious young bearer of the illusions named Chrono, said Rumford. Hail, O German Batball star. Hail him of the good luck peace. The three to whom he spoke stood just inside the wall. The pool was between them and Rumford. Old Salo, who had not been granted his wish to die, Grieved in the stern of the gilded rowboat that was beached outside the wall. I am not dying, said Rumford. I am merely taking my leave of the solar system. And I'm not even doing that. In the grand, in the timeless, in the chronosynclastic and fundibulated way of looking at things, I shall always be here. I shall always be wherever I've been. I'm honeymooning with you still, Beatrice, he said. I'm taking you to a little room under the stairway in Newport, Mr. Constant. Yes, and playing peekaboo in the caves of Mercury with you and Boaz. And Chrono, he said, I'm watching you still as you play German Batball so well 
on the iron playground of Mars, he groaned. It was a tiny groan, and so sad, so sweet, the mild air of Titan carried the tiny groan away. Whatever we said, friends, we're staying still. Such as it was, such as it is, such as it will be, said Rumford. The tiny groan came again. Rumford watched it leave as though it were a smoke ring. There's something you should know about life in the solar system, he said. Being chronos and classically infundibulated, I've known about it all along. It is, nonetheless, such a sickening thing that I've thought about as little as possible. The sickening thing is, everything that every earthling has ever done has been warped by creatures on a planet 150,000 light years away. The name of the planet is Tromaphidor. How the Tromaphidorians controlled us, I don't know, but I know to what end they've controlled us. They controlled us in such a way as to make us deliver a replacement part to Tromaphidorian messenger who was grounded right here on Titan. Rumford pointed a finger at young Chrono. You, young man, he said. You have it in pocket, motherfucker. In your pocket is the culmination of all Earthling history. In your pocket is the mysterious something that every Earthling was trying so desperately, so earnestly, so gropingly, so exhaustingly to produce and deliver. A fizzing twig of electricity grew from the tip of Rumford's accusing finger. The thing you call your good luck piece, said Rumford, is the replacement part for which the Tromaphidorian messenger has been waiting so long. The messenger, said Rumford, is the tangerine-colored creature who now cowers outside the walls. His name is Salo. I had hoped that the messenger would give mankind a glimpse of the message that he was carrying, since mankind was giving him such a nice boost on his way. Unfortunately, he is under orders to show the message to no one. He is a machine. And, as a machine, he has no choice but to regard orders as orders. I asked him politely show me the message, said Rumford. He desperately refused. The fizzing twig of electricity on Rumford's finger grew, forming a spiral around Rumford. Rumford considered the spiral with sad contempt. I think perhaps this is it, he said of the spiral. It was indeed. The spiral telescoped slightly, making a curtsy, and it began to revolve around Rumford, spinning a continuous cocoon of green light. It barely whispered as it spun. All I can say, said Rumford, from the cocoon, is that I have tried my best to do good for my native earth while serving the irresistible wishes of Traumaphrodor. Perhaps now that the part had been delivered to the Traumaphrodorian messenger, Traumaphrodor will leave the solar system alone. Perhaps earthlings will now be free to develop and process their own inclinations. Perhaps now that the part had been delivered to the Tromaphrodorian messenger, Tromaphrodor will leave the solar system alone. Perhaps Earthlings will now be free to develop and follow their own inclinations. 
as they have not been free to do for thousands of years. He sneezed. The wonder is that earthlings have been able to make as much sense as they have, he said. The green cocoon left the ground, hovered over the dome. Remember me as a gentleman of Newport, Earth, and the solar system, said Rumford. He sounded serene again, as peace with himself and at least equal to any creature he might encounter anywhere. In a punctual way of speaking came Rumford's glottal tenor from the cocoon. Goodbye. The cocoon and Rumford disappeared with a pfft. Rumford and his dog were never seen again. We just heard another excerpt by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. from his 1959 novel, The Sirens of Titan. It turns out that we hold less intrinsic meaning than the yeasts found on the grape skins of your Rioja. Next, we have a few compositions by Sidney C. Broad from his work, Transplant Poems and Prose, Mostly About Women. At Infinity, Contemplation in Golda's Library. Looking at trends approaching infinity, once we reach anything at such a length, absurdity, extrapolated, all the minor details are negligible. They simply drop away. This is not to say that details are not important. They're very important when habituated. The repetitive becomes ingrained and leaves a lasting effect. Covering any event that happened just the once, this principle holds for all aspects of life. Roaches miniature armored tanks, juggernauts, resistant to the most toxic of substances, radiation of a nuclear blast, sometimes even a boot at high speeds. After apocalyptic fallout and human extinction, they will scurry about victoriously. Blossom. Passers-by are drawn to her beauty, vibrant color painted on a sea of green. Some stop simply to admire, and others attempt to capture it desperately. Bunch by bunch, with each wind, are lost to scatter the earth, leaving her limbs bare. Blossom. cycles of joy and torment, bright hues 
and then darkness, wonderment and then dullness, ambition and then complacency. The moon tells me she must go. Like the burning reds and oranges on treetops, they would soon be extinguished by the bitter winter gale. She says it's even more special, fleeting, short, brief and sweet. No time to rot. In the springtime, we find each other at shawarma house. I chaining my bicycle to the meter, she sitting with another man. Our eyes only met for an instant through the glass before I entered. Her thick hair was now fiery red, bleached by the sun. I order as she drives off with him. You heard in the intro The Prophet, Cal Chater, D Natural Blues, West Montgomery, 1960, Narciss, Jeff Parker, 2020, Conversacion by Orlando Lopez, Carmapa Cheno, Don Cherry, 1977, Omen by Cojo Rojo. Slow Roll Tamigiro 2018 and I'm sending you off with Dreaming by the Sun Ra and his orchestra from 1955. It's been my pleasure. As always, Izzy Ben Ari. See you next time on Brain Dump. Bye. It always makes me cry.